See, this thing is, is really long. And usually when we start the Kate and Vince Gelsa podcast, we started at the beginning and we never get more than... This thing being th- this experimental yeah. music track that you crafted in it's... your retirement time. <laughs> Actually, I, I did this long before I retired. Really? Yeah, it's the Vince Gelsa uh, live clarinet um, line test is what it is. I was... I was testing out some of the reverb stuff in, uh, in, here in Studio V, you know, and I, I thought I would do it with the clarinet. It wasn't your new career as an experimental <laughs> music maker? Mm, well. It was. Yeah, all right. You don't yeah. have to apologize okay. for it. But we always play the very beginning. Yeah. We never play into it. You know, it's like 12 minutes long or something. So It's really your masterpiece. It is. It's my, it's my magnum opus. Well, this is the Kate and Vince Gelsa podcast. Your name always comes first, right? Yeah. Because uh, I forget sometimes when I, when I say it, I sometimes say my name first. Because I'm, I'm more used to saying my name, you know, when I identify myself in front of a microphone. Right. I'm Vince Gelsa. I don't say, hi, I'm Kate and Vince Gelsa. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but your name comes first in the name of the show, right? Yeah, well, I thought that was because it's nice to keep Vin and Skelsa together, I think, for people who are are f- more familiar with your name. Okay. I liked the idea of having Vin Skelsa as a unit. Because it was and a unit. And just a bonus that I then come first. <laughs> you do come first, my dear. <laughs> uh, because she's my daughter, this girl here, Kate Skelsa, this woman of, uh, of uh, fictional and uh, theatrical uh, renown. She is um, the author of uh, a recently published young adult novel called Fans of the Impossible Life. And she has acted for many years with uh, um, one of the premier uh, worldwide (laughs) renowned uh, theatrical companies uh, of an avant-garde nature, so to speak. And that's Elevator Repair Service. Thank you for that intro. And the last time we spoke, actually, you had just come back from Chile, where Mm -hmm. you were acting uh, with ERS down there. Yep. And that was uh, episode 10 of the podcast. And here we are now. It is episode 11. Mm -hmm. And we have something very exciting, especially for people who have been following the podcast and following the uh, the the ups and downs of uh, our um, our search. Yes, for we have something. had a search. But first, can I just say something? <laughs> I just want to say one thing before we get into the search. Yes, there's this thing that's been bugging me. Okay, for months and months and months, even from before we started doing the podcast, and I guess it wasn't bugging me enough before I retired from radio, which was back in May of yes. last year because I, I don't think I've ever mentioned it on the air but it, it it annoys and upsets me every time I see it and that is the use of the word drop to announce uh, that um, so and so is about to drop their new album or so and so is going to drop it's, it's about to drop on this date. yes it's dropping on Thursday and 
to me, like when you drop something, it's like it's slipping out of your hands. Yeah, it's, it's an almost, accident. It's like you know? or disrespectful. Or yeah. <laughs> or it's a it's the the classic image of the peasant woman in the field squatting down to drop her baby, you know, to give to give birth, right? And she just <laughs> that, sure, that, that's vivid. That's yeah. a vivid well, but that's what image I, that's coming to you. But that's sort of what I, you know, it's giving. It is a kind of giving birth, uh, you know. So maybe this is correct. Maybe that's what they want. The image they I, want to evoke. I just no. I don't like it. A peasant woman, no, <laughs> in a field. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I just think it's it's a, it's a it's an invented phrase. It's you release an album. I don't like it either. You I, release yeah. A, yeah really? I don't it's always bothered me. Okay. I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah, I don't like this I think drop. it's it's uh trying to sound cool. Yeah. It's trying to be like uh like the hip jargon of the industry, you know, yeah. like you know how to talk. But I don't know anybody in the in the record business in the music business whoever says it. You know, I think it's all a, like a PR thing more than anything else. Nobody ever dropped an album on me, except me. I've dropped an entire library on top of myself once, but that's, you know, that's a whole other definition. Why was something, did this come up? Uh, what what uh, triggered, what triggered you? What I is was, your trigger? I was reading something in the paper, in the Times maybe, about a book that was dropping next week. Oh. Oh, interesting. Right. Yeah. That's even taking it out of yeah. even just a music right. colloquialism. So now it's now it's anything being, can drop. Anything. It's being used in these other creative fields and I think it's gotten out of hand and I want it stopped. As a matter of fact, my slogan for this campaign is stop the drop. The, good. You like it? Yeah, that's your that's your campaign. That's my year, campaign. Your election year campaign. Yeah, I want I want bumper stickers. <laughs> Stop <laughs> the drop. Good. Now, all right. All so right. now that I've gotten that out of uh, my system, I want to welcome everybody to the Kate and Finn Skelsa podcast, episode eleven. Yeah, uh, we're we're together in Studio V. That's and, right. Uh, if you've been listening for well, um, the last two casts podcast or or last one anyhow yeah we were talking about the passing of david bowie and the fact that i had the privilege and the great pleasure and honor and and these are not words that i use lightly um of interviewing david bowie back in the early 90s as part of uh, uh a radio series that was um practically dead in its tracks before it even got started it was something that i was doing as a hired hand for rolling stone because and, you had your regular show were you on k-rock or new at that uh, point? uh 93 i was on k-rock in new york mm -hmm. and so you were doing your regular weekly show it was my sunday night show mm -hmm. that long six hour plus long thing that i used to do on sunday nights and uh i was approached by somebody I forget who. Maybe we'll find out a bit later in the show how I got involved because I don't remember, but somebody else may. And, mm -hmm. Our special um, guest. Yes, <laughs> our special phone guest mm -hmm. a bit later on. But for some reason, I got this job. They wanted me to be the, the interviewer of these people, and the show would be called One-on-One, -on -One, Rolling Stone's One-on-One. -on -One. And Rolling Stone was producing it? 
Well, or they just had lent their name to it. I it was going to be associated. We can ask. Again, them. we'll ask this guy, okay. the guy who was actually the hired producer for it. We're going to mm-hmm. talk to him a bit later. Um, but yeah, Rolling Stones definite, definitely. Rolling Stone had had their hand in it, and there was something called the Global Satellite Network that was releasing it and getting sponsors for it and and things like that. But I did two interviews. One was Pete Townsend right around the time that that Tommy came to Broadway and the second was um David Bowie and they they were done within days of each other in the very early spring of 1993 and when they were released to the radio stations like after somebody the producer guy who we're going to talk to later he got the raw tapes of my conversations with these two gentlemen and then he cut them up and put music in and did every... I had nothing to do with the actual production of these things. And then they were pressed onto CD and sent out to the radio stations that were going to broadcast them. That's how they would distribute them. They would burn them onto CDs. And so early on, I got what I remembered as both CDs of, of these two shows, but it turns out that what I what I possess and what I can physically point to is two copies of the Pete Townsend one-on-one. And I always thought that I I got the Bowie too. It wouldn't have made sense not to get it. Because we've seen the Pete Townsend around. It'll show up on piles in Studio V or like, I've seen it. The usual mess of stuff here and and in the basement of Studio V as well. And so when Bowie died... The first thing we thought of was, oh, let's go looking for the, yeah. the this interview. And again, it was not the raw interview. I never had a copy of that, but it was the produced interview. And I said that has to be the next podcast because one yeah. of my we've been for the first ten episodes, and for a few more we will really focusing on your history in radio and your career. But once we kind of get everybody filled in on that, the main thing we really want to be doing is listening to these incredible interviews that you have and this library of interviews that are literally sitting in the basement of your home. And because podcasting is so easy for us to do, we have the equipment, Mm -hmm. it's so easy to get online to share these with people. So, of course, it was like, you have a David Bowie interview, that's the next podcast. Right. So we began to look. I began to look. And Mom, Freddie, was helping as well. And we tore the basement apart. And I, I tore I was very adamant. Apart. I said, I'm not doing another podcast. Yeah, we have, it has I'm to doing be the Bowie. Bowie, Bowie, Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> They're both retired. You, you need a task. I, that's true. Um, and and <laughs> there is a photograph that yes. was taken. That, that I have a copy of and that's out there on the internet of, of David Bowie and I. I'll post it again to you on, on the Facebook okay. page. That was taken after we did the recording. The recordings were done at the studios of K-Rock. Um, again, like I said, back in early 1993. So uh, we got to the point where we, were, where we were so frustrated looking for this that we even uh, got Kate's Aunt Carol... To uh... Well, a couple things happened. Right. We asked, well, I wrote on Facebook, on your Facebook page, on the, on the Idiot's Delight Facebook page, which is fans of your radio show, mm-hmm. that we were looking for this thing 
and could everyone please pray to St. Anthony? Because, you know, you're Italian, I'm half Italian, <laughs> my Aunt Carol's Italian. When you can't find something, you talk to St. Anthony about it. St. Anthony being, uh, amongst other things, the patron saint of uh, finding things that are lost right. or something in Italian and culture. So everyone on Facebook took it very seriously. Mm-hmm. They were like, okay, yep, St. Anthony, all right, wait, we want to hear this, we got to make this happen. And we had no practical way of finding it, though, other than prayer to St. Anthony. And you guys did. You, t- you talked to Aunt Carol. Mm-hmm. called up Aunt Carol, and you yeah. said, we need to find this thing. And Aunt Carol has, like, a 99% like positive track record with St. Anthony. Yeah, well, you know, Aunt Carol's from, from, from Hoboken. Yeah. You know, she grew up in that kind of old world Hoboken, Italian Catholic, you know, Frank Sinatra lived around the corner from her family thing. Yeah, you know, so she's got a pretty good track record. But she also has a special connection with him uh, that we something. don't we don't question. Like yeah. she's found like passports the day before, you know, international travel happened. She's like averted disasters. Yeah, for us, literally. She and yep. Saint Anthony. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> now, but uh, so we did another episode. We did episode ten where I was like, all right, this is, I guess, my compromise. with I can't, I, this this ultimatum of no more podcasts until we find the interview isn't working. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do, we're going to keep going, and we're just going to hold out hope. And you, I think, had lost hope. I had totally lost hope. You're yeah. like, it's not here. No, I didn't believe that it, that it existed. So we talked about it on the last podcast. We said, you know, we're looking for this, but you were like, I don't think it exists. Mm-hmm. And then on my Kate Skelsa Facebook fan page uh a couple weeks ago i got a message from a guy named matt wardlaw who had heard the podcast episode and who wrote and said his friend worked at global satellite network and and worked on the pete townsend and david bowie interviews and matt asked him do you have these interviews and jim was like yes and what? Give me an email to send them to. Totally random, right? Yeah, I mean, and and he, yeah, and of all the ways to contact me, like thank goodness I have this Facebook page mm-hmm. that you can write me private messages on. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness I checked it, and Matt just solved the problem. I mean, I I couldn't, I really couldn't believe it. So, um, yeah, we've been talking to Jim, and we're gonna we're gonna talk to Jim more later but Jim was able to get us this interview and now now here's the deal he doesn't have the original unedited conversation right all he had was the actual show that he produced he had a, a CD of that the same way that I have the CDs of the Pete Townsend show um, but he made that available to us and we've explained a bunch of times the fact that we're not prepared to play music recorded music on uh on this podcast we can play we can play music that for instance you know either original original music or recordings of live things that have not been released you know like if there's like remember when we we played the 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 Carol and Carolers, the Roaches, yeah, uh, thing. You can do that. You don't have to worry about the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And well, we're giving away these podcasts for free. Yeah, and if it is a recording that okay, this is very very pretty. 
Thank you. <laughs> so, the, um, so if, if you can't really give away something that because people can download the podcast, if you have copyrighted content right. on there, it's not right. And the fact is, when uh, when an artist performs live on the radio, that performance is not copyrighted. The same way that the released recording of that exactly. on a on a record by record, yeah. and so and we don't we just don't want to fool around. I know there's lots of people who do podcasts who ignore that, and nobody ever bothers them or anything. But we're not interested in in. Well, the purpose of this podcast is about your history in radio and and your conversations with other people, mm. and it's less about uh, about music and about recorded music in the same kind of way that the rest of your career right. has been. And it's frustrating, but that's us dealing with the law and dealing, you know, giving the artists the respect that they. Well, people can they play. They can play David Bowie songs, maybe like while they're. Mm -hmm. You know, they could pause this podcast and go listen to some songs. <laughs> so what I've done is basically I've um, I've excerpted the the bits of conversation that were used in between playing songs. Now, most of the material that was played was from what was then his latest album. He put out an album in '93 called Black Tie. White Noise, Black Tie, White Noise, mm -hmm. that was uh, co-produced along with Nile Rodgers um, from uh, Chic. Nile Rodgers is a guy, you know, like a, who was a disco guy and is mm -hmm. a renowned producer who um, uh, Bowie had worked with back in the 80s. And um, now he had gotten together with him again. And at a certain point here, you'll you'll hear him talking about uh, about Nile. So the only time that that you'll actually hear music is when in the finished product, the music runs underneath a little bit mm -hmm. of the, yeah. of the conversation. But the segments are such that I think we can sort of play them one at a time and maybe comment on them a little bit or talk about them or whatever. But yeah. And I've waited until now. I listened to it a little bit and was already, it was already incredible. So I wanted to wait until now to listen to it, okay. the whole thing. And so, I want to say thank you. Thank you to Matt and thank you to Jim for being the, for being complete uh, angels on this and to everyone who, Spoke to St. Anthony, mm -hmm. like, well done. Yep. Power of St. Anthony conversation. And it, what's remarkable about this is, like, you say you haven't really listened to it yet. When I finally listened to it, I was like a virgin coming to it because I have no recollection of this conversation. Right, because last week I was trying, last time I was trying to get you to put it together, like, what did you guys yeah. talk about? Can we somehow recreate? The did, only, what did you learn? The only thing that I remember is talking to him about saxophone, taking saxophone lessons right. as a kid because I took saxophone lessons as a kid. And in this very first segment, we'll get to discussing his early days as a saxophone player and clearly my part of the conversation has been edited out because the show wasn't about me the show was about david bowie the new album is called black tie white noise now it's uh, certainly a, a metaphorical title and that black and white can stand for a whole lot of things but can we go all the way back 
to the very first black tie for David Bowie as a kid growing up in the 50s in England? Was there a black tie musically for you? There was a literal one. that I was made to wear a black tie in a band that I was in, in called the Conrads. Um, we had brown corduroy suits and black ties. And I got them to change it to a brown tie. It was a band that I left because they wouldn't do Marvin, a cover version of Marvin Gaye's Can I Get Me a Witness? And that was the group breaker. Uh-huh. That particular song, I remember very clearly. Were you playing saxophone in that band? Yeah, I was playing about the, at the same standard that I'm playing now. <laughs> um, but it was something that I, I really wanted to be at the time. I wanted, all I knew is that I wanted to be in a band that had a sax lineup like Little Richard's. But I, I could never, I never, I nearly got into a situation like that. There was a band called Manish Boys that I joined for about a month. All these bands you go through very quickly. Taking its name from uh, from Muddy Waters. Yeah, Muddy Waters song, yeah. yeah. Well, there was that, there was Manish Boys, and there was another band, the King Bees. The King well, Bees, right? which also was uh, uh, an old uh, rhythm and blues title. When you started playing saxophone, did yeah. you start as a, as a young kid just doing traditional lessons, or did you specifically start because you wanted to play that kind of music? There was a man who lived near me in, in uh, where I was living at the time, in, in Bromley. I was about nine years old when uh, I... I goaded my father into buying a saxophone, uh, which he very kindly did. And then I took a job as a butcher's boy to pay him back, you know, deliver deliver meat on Saturdays. Uh, that's euphemistic, isn't it? Um, and I found out that uh, one of our greatest saxophonists, Ronnie Ross, baritone player, well, he lived not far from me, about two or three miles down the road. So I phoned him up and asked him if he would uh, give classes. And he said... I never give classes to anybody. I'm, hey, kid, I'm having a tough enough job making my own living here. And he said, OK, come along. And so I went successively six Saturday mornings and uh, took lessons with him. At the end of the six, I said, I know enough now. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm going to play rock and roll. And he said, yeah, you know enough to play rock and roll. Now, I've talked a number of times about the sax part on Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. And I've said that in interviewing both Bowie, my recollection of this conversation about saxophones, and uh, interviewing Lou Reed, is that neither of them could tell me who played sax on the original recording of Walk on the Wild Side. But on the most recent CD version release of that album, Transformer, Lou Reed's Transformer, there are musician credits. And in fact, Ronnie Ross, the very same man who Bowie said was his teacher, is listed as the baritone sax solo on this album. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. When he said he started at nine years old, I got all excited. And I said, you know, I started clarinet when I was eight. And we began riffing on, you know, our various uh, escapades as little kids with jazz and, and Downbeat magazine and all that. That's all coming back to me now. Right. That this I'm is good. Now this. you can fill in your part of <laughs> right, the interview ex- exactly. now that you're hearing it. But that's Bowie uh, uh, talking about uh, some of the bands he was in early on. Um, I guess when he was still David Jones, which was his real name. Yeah. Uh, and then we we start talking about a horn player who played on this new album. So here's the 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 next uh, spoken word piece. 
one of your your bandmates from uh, Tin Machine refers to you as the the Neil Young of the saxophone, I believe. I thought that. Well, he's very arty. <laughs> yeah. Lester, Lester Bowie got it much more on the nose and said I was the Bill Clinton of uh, rock and roll. Uh, let's talk about Lester Bowie. Let's talk about Bill Clinton. Let's talk about Lester. Let's talk about Lester from the art ensemble of uh, yeah. Chicago, one of the great <coughs> innovative jazz musicians of this part of the century. He's tremendous and also has a very talented brother, as you probably know, Joe Bowie. Yeah. I actually met Joe Bowie before I met Lester. I met Joe in uh, London in about uh, 1984, and it was Joe that was actually responsible for turning me on to Lester's work. Um, and he'd always been at the back of my mind that I would love to work with him on something or other, and the occasion was never right until this uh, new album. And Niall and I were wondering what kind of instrument to have as a counterpoint to the vocals. And we got quite a few saxophone things down uh, with me playing alto and, and tenor. But we wanted something else uh, to give it more variety. And, and that's when I knew that it would be the right time to work with Lester. Mm. So I gave him a call. He came in to do one song and was just so spectacular, so talented and carefree and spontaneous that we just kept working with him. He, he lends such a, a clean sound to these tracks that are sometimes so so frequently dense and layered yes, and textured. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Lester will come on, like on that, that very first appearance that he makes on uh, You've Been Around, yeah. where you conjure up that old lyrical ghost of changes, and then all of a sudden he's there like like crystal. Yeah, pristine. There's something almost... There's something glass-like about his playing, and it comes... All his playing is totally unpremeditated. He doesn't listen to tracks. He says, just tell me what key it's in, and then he goes in, you spin the track, and he just plays at it. He he almost doesn't play with it. He plays at it. So that's pretty cool, isn't it? Yep. Bowie talking about uh, uh, Lester Bowie, no no relation, uh, since David Bowie's not even really David Bowie. As I said, he wasn't born with that name. He's just, um, David, it's just like, it's mesmerizing to listen to him, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, what's your reaction to hearing this? Well, I just, uh, I mean, last time we talked about how charming he was that that was the Mm. one thing you remembered was how charming and uh well because i wondered when someone's that famous and that successful is it a given that they must be charming because that is sort of that's how you you have to be you can't really be a complete asshole and be beloved Mm. even if you're alternative or odd or out there or weirdo at a certain point you have a kind of charisma that is people are drawn to and you felt that when you spoke to him oh yes yeah and i'm feeling it again now hearing this all these years later once again this was recorded in 1993 and that that reference to bill clinton clinton was uh just in the white house at that point right 92 Two, wasn't that when he, when yes. he went in? Yeah. So uh, 
So this was like pre the scandals, and it was just dealing with Clinton right. as a saxophone player. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting to have to put this sort of stuff into its historical context. But that thing that you're talking about, about being a, um, a charismatic figure and not being an asshole, like putting the assholeness behind you or whatever. Yeah. He's going to talk about that soon. Yeah. You'll hear some of that. Mm-hmm. But the the next um, excerpt concerns uh, his relationship with Nile Rogers, the guy who was the co-producer of this album, Black Tie, White Noise. Tell how you got involved with Nile again this time around. It's been, this ten, time around? It's been 10 years now since, yeah. since Let's Dance. Um I guess we've seen each other sporadically over the years, but not not in a working capacity. And towards the end of the Tim Machine last tour, uh, we did uh, a bunch of gigs in New York, about four or five gigs in New York. And Niall came to the last two. Uh, and afterwards, we would just go out and have a meal and talk about music and how life has been going and all that mm-hmm. stuff. That, you know. Just social stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of social stuff. And then we got we really got into this thing about uh, dance music and how it was uh, there was kind of a one dimension appearing in it. It was starting to become too chant like, and there wasn't much of an opening for kind of a European melodic sensibility over it, which is always I've always considered as being one of my fortes is working. I feel really successful when I work with a kind of a hybrid thing that brings together American uh, traditional music forms and a, a, a European, almost like a, a French uh, approach to singing, which is a very strong melodic line. And uh, a lot of, of uh, British, um, in fact, a lot of British musical kind of work, like Anthony Newley even, is still, you know, was a very important part of what I used to listen to when I was a kid. Um, not oh, wait a minute, hold for, it. Can I, can I just, yeah. can I stop here for a second? Yeah. Can I conjure up the image of David Jones on the brink of becoming uh, David Bowie, standing in front of a mirror, singing, what kind of fool am I? Is that, is that what you're talking about? No, I'd, no, it wasn't specifically the songs that he did. It was an attitude that he had in the beginning, in the 60s. He was really something very interesting. There was something about him that I liked. There was a sense of loneliness about him, a solitude that I... I really liked about what he was doing, or rather, I empathised with that. I felt very much that that was something that, uh, that in fact, was uh, welling up in me. It was something that I could work off as a force. In fact, turn my own feelings of loneliness and isolation into a force for writing. Mm. So this this aspect of him, where he was uh, unclassifiable, yeah. that also influenced you. Really struck a note in me yeah. because I didn't think that I belonged to any particular form. I didn't feel like... I never felt like a, a rock, rock and roller. I never... And I never will. Um, I, lo- I love rock, and I love to be involved in rock music, but it's something that I use as a palette, something as colours for the songs that I write, rather than... I'm not a gung-ho, testosterone-filled, yeah, yeah. fist-in-the-air rocker. Now there, we're starting to get into some of the, the meat of, of David Bowie. And his uh, his decades long successful career is that really it comes down to he he saw himself as an artist who used various genres of music, various colors of paint to 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 make his art. Yeah. You know, to to say on a on a Rolling Stone 
radio, syndicated radio program. I'm, I'm not a rock and roller. I don't consider myself a rock and roller. Is you know, on the one hand, it is is seems kind of like biting the hand that feeds you, but it's really him just being truthful about it, you know? Yeah. And when he says testosterone-driven, he's sort of talking about that kind of heavy, you know, rock, that real male sort of, um, you know, vinyl, that TV show that's on HBO right now that I I watched one episode of and then I said, nah, because it's not my recollection of what, <laughs> what 1973 in New York was like. Sure. But this is 1993 now with uh, with David Bowie, and now we're getting into the meat of his longevity, and he talks about surviving the 70s. The 70s were such an incredibly productive period for you. When you go they back... They were. One, maybe two albums a year. Yeah, I mean, incredible. Yeah. You, you, at the end of the 70s, there was like 16, 17, 18 albums, something yeah, like that, yeah. and there were other projects yeah, as well. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I think so many of us worked in a very similar fashion. I think there's, you know, there's something about youth that you can't buy and can't replace. There's a um, an uneasy sense that none of this is going to last, so you've got to do everything now. Mm. It's only validated by your own innocence and naivete. I mean, later on you realise that you have all the time in the world, even though that time is finite. But during that period of youthful zest, I think you feel that what you have to say is the most important thing in the world, and you've got to say it as quickly and as, in as many different ways as you can. You say you have to do everything, you know, and um, certainly in, in your example, everything includes a whole wide-ranging list of things, much of it being uh, abuse of yourself, substance abuse. Again, it was the tail end of the 60s into the 70s, and we found ourselves, all of us, I think probably my situation has been more strongly elaborated and magnified upon than most others. But there were, believe me, a bunch of us um, at that period going through a real hedonistic slide into some kind of abyss. And some of us were fortunate enough to be able to get out of it. A hedonistic slide into some kind of abyss. <laughs> A little different pronunciation for what we pronounce as the abyss. An abyss it sounds like a... Isn't an abyss the woman who runs a, a, a nunnery? I oh, think she's the abyss, she's yes. The abyss. A hedonistic slide into the abyss. Well, I love what he said in the... in that segment before about outsiderness and and that his outsiderness affected the way he made his work not just in the content of his work and the style of his work but the way he thought about it the more i come to understand what it means to have a solo career not to compare myself to david bowie but i just in the past few years of my life have gone from having a career that involved a lot of other people to just being a writer on my own. And it's really interesting to me to hear someone talk about, well, I never thought of myself as, I never over-identified with my, with my medium or with my genre. And I think that is an incredible survival tactic that obviously just came naturally to him and mm -hmm. was because, oh, I'm an outsider, so therefore I'm never a thing. I'm never a thing you can define, right? I'm never I'm never the rock star because 
the, a rock star is a thing you can define and it's a group of people and I'm not that I'm an outsider I'm an alien mm. and I think I mean maybe that's not healthy in that it's it's very lonely <laughs> that might be a very lonely existence um but I think that it it must it must keep you in it must keep you in your own head and keep your art pure in a way that gives you an understanding of of art coming from a kind of source and coming from an instinct that is not about the medium the medium is the way in which you are for you must communicate in some way and so the medium is the way you will communicate this mm, the medium is or isn't the message then the, <laughs> the medium, medium is bringing the message the, the medium is not the message then you're saying the exact opposite of what marshall McLuhan said back in the 60s yeah that the medium was the message well, the medium might be the message for the person taking in the medium, but I think for the artist, the th what he's saying here is the medium is just how he landed. The medium was, this was just the best way for him. Because what I find really interesting and what I'm trying to understand for myself is how do you maintain a purity of of vision and of your own artistic impulses that is separate from the concrete world, right? Mm -hmm. And separate even from the book that your words become, the album that your music becomes. Because that's all tangible. That's all of the world. And the creative process is not tangible and is not of the world. And if you get mixed up in thinking that it is, then the world can corrupt your creative process because it's going to put a lot of restrictions on it and a lot of ideas about what's good and what's bad and what's worthwhile and what's not so it's inspired does that make sense do you know what i mean um i th yeah i think i know what you mean intellectually i'm i'm trying to think of it also i'm trying to relate to it as whatever it is that i did that i considered to be art um over the years i mean there were there were different types of things about my art like like I'm so tickled to hear how I come off talking to David Bowie in 1993 like almost like we're we're you know mates I mean like yeah. I put him at ease that was part of my my art with dealing with interviews was that I put people at ease so that they were relaxed. They knew they weren't going to get attacked. Right. And it opened them up. You can hear how giving he's being. And these are only just excerpts of, you know, what was an hour long conversation that he and I had. Um, and then I think sometimes about like putting together music. There were nights when. I definitely knew I was connected to this greater force, mm -hmm. this creative force. I would call it the radio muse. And I would I would literally describe it as the muse sitting on my shoulder, whispering in my ear, saying, play this next. Play that next. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is going to make. Yeah, it's, ooh, cre it's creative. You know, it's yeah. creative inspiration. Yeah. And how does and I'm, I was doing that on a very commercial playing field which was commercial radio for so many years. But I always managed to get away with it. Well, and not to 
not to compare you to Bowie, but I do think also, you know, when people, when I tried to describe to someone new what my dad did, and I would say, well, he's a DJ, he's a radio DJ, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, th- that what you do is, has always been operating within a commercial medium, but you have, I think, also always identified as an outsider. And also, the thing about identifying mm-hmm. as an outsider in a way that um, is not a bad thing, in, in you're not saying, I'm an outsider, no one understands me. But if you're, an out, if you're a proud outsider, or you're a comfortable outsider, if you're comfortable with that part of yourself, you're not then asking for anyone's permission to do what you do. And you're mm-hmm. not trying to fit in to anyone's standards and you're not responding to well i didn't like what he did there he should do it this way or who you should become or what questions about your work you should be doing or what you should be doing next and that is i think the struggle for anyone doing any kind of creative work is how do you maintain a purity in listening to your own voice about your work and not trying to make it into something else mm-hmm. so i it's interesting that that is deeply rooted i think in in how we see ourselves even in childhood it's like what he's saying he looked at someone who couldn't be defined and who was an outsider and who had a kind of loneliness about them and said that's me and i think a lot of people look at that figure you know cuz we all have parts of ourselves that we think no one understands and we think is like weird and like oh my god no one else experiences this which is why david bowie i mean the irony is when you embrace that part of yourself right when you become david bowie and you're like i'm an alien no one understands me <laughs> everyone looks at him as like oh my god oh my that's god. me yeah right he right. understands me right. because he has a connection to such a pure idea of self and sense of self and creative channel that isn't being corrupted by the noise of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, and everyone is to some degree, but um, that's very inspiring to me to hear him say that, that like his, and I, I hope, I mean, that's inspiring to others that this thing of that outsider feeling is actually really beautiful and and not outsider is like cool outside like like alternative counterculture like actual like i am alone Mm -hmm. and i am a weirdo and like what and then to make that beautiful and celebrate it and and he came along at a point in time where this very popular art form rock and roll was available and waiting for him, you know? So he's got, even as the outsider, as the lonely creator, he's got a built-in audience in the medium of, of rock and roll. I mean, had he come along in the 1920s, would he have been Noel Coward? Right. You know, would he have been earlier than that? Would he have been uh, uh, Oscar... Wilde. Oscar Wilde. Right. You know, I mean, there's always been these these figures throughout uh, the, the, the post-Renaissance world of, of Western culture. Yeah. And that have a boldness to be unapologetically themselves mm. and, and where 
does that boldness come from? And I think it it often is a sense of uh, there's literally I can't not be myself. Like, yeah, I'm too much myself. There's no there's no pretending I am not this person. In this next section, he'll discuss a little bit of uh, uh, how he relates the notion of God to um, to art and to his self perceptions. How did you manage to create that amazing body of work in that decade when you were living this hedonistic life and, and mm. taking the substances that you were taking and abusing yourself the way you were? You still managed to produce a body of work then a that lot stands. It, a lot of it, I think, a lot of it became um, an alternative to reality. A lot of it became um, an alternative to life itself, that one, one's work became the fabric of existence. Um, uh, and uh, one tended to anesthetize oneself and become numb to a real-life situation. And all energies were defined in an artistic... All feelings were defined in an artistic manner. And so you made those artistic definitions work rather than having to face up to emotional and probably spiritual responsibilities. But I think also on my part, personally, I always... Uh, there was a spiritual search going on. I think uh, from the beginning, uh, ever since I was a child, I knew that I wanted to define my relationship with the universe, not in a trippy kind of, you know, 60s fashion. Um, I always felt a sense of God, and I never quite was sure how to express myself within, within that that warmth within that sort of spiritual reality. I think a lot of, um, I believe a lot of writers, even unconsciously, are trying to make a connection that way. Mm. Well, I've fortunately never been able to define God, and I think that's probably as it should be. I think the, uh, for me, um, it's been almost uh, a flagrant abuse of our limited intellectual capacities to, to try and define God. I think it's far better that we arrive at a situation where we realize it's not important and it's also absolutely impossible to be able to define God. And when we get to that state, I think we can achieve a better understanding of exactly what place God is in our lives and what place he has in our lives and what place we have in his life. What was your religious upbringing? Straightforward Protestant Church of England. Was the I was in the I was in the uh, church choir. And, really? Yeah, I was in the church choir briefly with, for a couple of weeks with a guy who knocked my eye out. Um, <laughs> in the choir while you were rehearsing or something? No, or? actually, it was at school. We also attended the same school. His name is George Underwood. Um, is a wonderful painter and uh, illustrator. And we had a fight over his girlfriend, who I was dating behind his back. Uh. I've never done that again. <laughs> no, uh, you don't want to risk. He your also, eye. I must, I must add that he's also still my best friend after all, really? all these years. Yeah. I mean, did anybody come to you during that period when you were being rather self-destructive, and just grab you and shake you and say, "David, cut this out." Well, <laughs> I up had, here. yeah, I th uh, which of course does nobody any good because one reacts against that. <laughs> of course, it gets <laughs> even completely more stubbornly. Sure. I mean. <laughs> The one thing that I've learned, I, I think, uh, uh, maybe is the most useful thing that I've learned, is that you cannot ever control anybody else's life. And you, 
It's even really hard to suggest to somebody what they should be doing, that really they have to find out for themselves. And if they're going to, they will. And if they won't, they, they won't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did so happen that it coincided that, that my very close friend over 20 years, Coco Schwab, who's been my friend and my assistant since uh, the very early 70s, um, uh, was the one who was indeed sort of trying to hold up a mirror to what I was doing and saying, a mirror with nothing on it, I might add, um, that maybe that I should really take a good look at what I was doing to myself. And with her support and my own realisation that I was killing myself, um, I, I kind of eventually scrambled free from that so that situation. Do you have that commitment now to your music? To music? Yeah. I do, because it's something that I profit by. Also, um, Wait, wait define also, that. What do you mean by profit? Profit by in terms of that it's provided me with um, uh, uh, a, a wonderfully financially rewarding career. Um, also, I find that I still can express myself um, as an artist through my music. I think at this age, 46, now coming up 47, surely, um, had I not had success at this age I don't know again it's too hypothetical mm. I don't know I don't know if I would have had the perseverance I wonder if you're in fact a workaholic I mean if that's the oh uh, without the doubt. personality trait yes there. yeah very, without doubt I mean that's been the, the a, a real a major change with me in um, having a new relationship having a a wife and a potentially a new family um, is that I really have had to measure what what percentage of my life is taken up with uh, my work and, and that I have to pull it out of myself to start learning how to uh, really give and, and relate to the people around me. All that comes, I think, later in life, unfortunately. Hmm. So he had, I guess, just recently gotten together and with and married... Um, Iman. The, Iman, mm-hmm. Iman. And uh, to hear him at the age of 46, 47, and he and I are, you know, we're the same age, which is another reason why I was able to kind of bond with him and he with me that that day back in 1993. It's so interesting to note how that kind of relationship with a, a, a hedonistic, flamboyant artist can make a big difference at a certain age. I'm thinking of, again, Lou Reed and how Lou, who, um, in addition to the hedonism and the self-destructiveness, also had that that bitter, angry, nasty <laughs> yeah. side to him, you know, that that I don't think Bowie ever really... We should say that, also saying that you loved Lou. And oh, that, yeah. <laughs> and, and that, but that's... But famously, he had, he was a grump. Yeah, and, and I developed a relationship with him after he met Laurie Anderson. Right. And that's what softened him and yeah. I mean love love tames the beast yeah love tames the mm. beast I guess and Bowie's saying the same thing yeah there. at that same period in life that you know mid 40s that the middle part of middle age you know where you begin to look for other things and if you've managed to survive yeah that's um that's that's arriving at a real good point now I don't know did they have children you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. He has uh, a son from his first marriage and a daughter from his marriage with Iman. Oh, okay. 
But it was, it seems like that was that second marriage that, that caused him to settle down. Because his first marriage was uh, 1970. Mm, so that so that one was still in the middle that of that was the crazy that yeah. was Ziggy that was Ziggy Stardust right. time you know yeah well I I found it really beautiful to hear him speak so uh, plainly about this idea of writing as a spiritual quest and making music as a spiritual quest because I think that I mean that's a little bit of what we were talking about before mm. this idea of if you have a sense of something bigger that you're doing with your work and not bigger in importance, not like I'm really making a statement, but bigger as in I'm having a relationship to creative energy that is the actual purpose of my work. And whether you call that God or you call that a spiritual quest. And I think it's very beautiful to hear him state plainly like, yeah, my work is my my creative process is me trying to understand God. Like, that's so simple and so beautiful. And then I love that he also says, you know, that's such a loaded thing. And I don't know, want to know, I don't want to define God because that, you know, has gotten us into a whole lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think, and that he says also, um, that's what most artists are doing. But I think it is a really beautiful thing as an artist to, to prioritize that idea because that's taking a level of responsibility for the creative process where you're you're doing something very personal that's also not about you at all right if it's about spirituality if it's about god it's Mm. literally not about you you know it's about this bigger beautiful thing and um yeah, this and also you know you've been reading what the my next book that I've been working on and this is what I'm really interested in also in this book I'm writing about pop stars and about uh this idea of music as as a kind of channel and of creativity as a kind of channel. And it makes me really happy to hear him say this because one of the things I've done in this first draft of this next book is I'm like writing pop stars never say what I want them to say. I'm I've been doing reading so many interviews with Kanye West and with Lady Gaga and with uh Nicki Minaj and all these people who I, I you can you can find them, you can pin them down enough to talk about a, le- a level of arrogance and a level of like I'm amazing and people still don't even I'm a millionaire people's billionaires people still don't even realize how amazing I am mm. you know that's mostly Kanye that's like what Kanye is dealing with <laughs> which I'm fascinated by but the next level up is I'm I'm having a relationship with spirituality and with the universe through my work and and I, I want to hear that more and so so thank you david bowie because there's a way to say that poor kanye is so uh wrapped up in the problems of the world that even when kanye is like i'm jesus i'm i'm the son of god you know i'm here to say god's word it's arrogance because it's like well we're all jesus honey you know like everybody's everybody can have a relationship with the universe and with creativity that's like what creativity is so 
it's so of course because we're saying david bowie's incredibly eloquent and charming of course he just comes out and says it perfectly mm. is like my creative process is me having a relationship with the universe and trying to understand god and there's not even it's the, it was like the most unarrogant sentence ever said it was just like <laughs> yep that's what i'm doing and it's like i don't need credit for that i don't need like that's just what the creative process is so if one of the things you're looking at in your own writing now um is uh, trying to make up for what you're not getting in the reality of what pop stars are saying are you are you're you're sort of creating what you really want to hear from a pop star yeah you're putting those words into a character's mouth now right yeah yeah which is which is pretty neat <laughs> because i think the more we can take responsibility for an idea about the, it just as an artist, you're much better off if you are prioritizing this other thing mm -hmm. rather than worrying about how you're being received. Well, once again, what we're listening to here is um, excerpts of um, excerpts of excerpts. Really, I did a, a a long interview with David Bowie back in 1993. It probably lasted an hour, and of that hour. Um, a producer who we're going to be talking to in just a little while found pieces that he could use to illustrate tracks from Bowie's past as well as from what was then the new album and was being mostly what the show was about, this Rolling Stone one-on-one, -on -one, the album called Black Tie, White Noise. And so what I'm playing for you is what he excerpted from the original master recording conversation and i've just taken out the music that he put in and we're just hearing what he put in and it's since that time whatever stations broadcast that rolling stone one-on-one -on -one, it's never been heard since and i'm not even sure who heard it then when it was broadcast but the idea of black tie white noise i asked him about about race because the black tie, the whole notion of that in some of the material on the album is definitely race-related. And again, remember that this is 1993 when he's talking. On the new album, on uh, yeah. uh, Black Tie, White Noise, the title track refers to uh, uh, not only uh, an examination of uh, racial relationships, mm but very specifically was inspired by your experiencing the L.A. riots last mm. year. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, as best that I can. Um, Iman and I had had a, a holiday in Italy, and uh, we flew back very excitedly to uh, um, L.A. On the day that the riots started, we had no... We hadn't even... It hadn't even occurred... We'd been in Europe for such a long time that it hadn't occurred to us that the verdict was due on the Rodney King case. And we came back that afternoon, and the driver, in fact, of the car that took us back into town from the airport said, can you believe that verdict? And what are you talking about? Mm. Was it the Rodney King? They got acquitted. Oh, hell. And we both looked at each other and sort of just knew what was going to happen. I mean, it, it, it was just inevitable. And I think that was the over, overwhelming feeling of that week. Um, was the inevitability of it, and also the numbness that it left both of us in. Um, really focused and, uh, and, and totally uh, 
emotional time for us in as much that we were uh, a mixed couple. And it was sort of, it brought up everything uh, about, not, not about our relationship, but everything that surrounded our relationship. Um, and it was a really, it was a really, really testing time in that way. What we're seeing at the moment is a movement in, in, uh, in the black community for a form of separatism. There's a, a new need for a, a strong black economy because the hand of liberal acceptance is given out and it's pulled back, it's given out and pulled back. Ever since the days of the, uh, of the marches in the 60s, I think that the, 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 the whole dream, the whole ideal started to uh, fragment and fall apart when it was realised that what the movement, in fact, was about was to commit all things black to all things white. And with that understanding, I think a whole new realisation of what integration had to be about started back then. And by the 70s, it was really had started to become muddied and, and muddled. Now the, the corrective attitude has to be a movement from all things wrong to all things right. And here we are now, how many years later? That was 93. Oh, God. And this is 2016. And that is still a subject that has um, not been dealt with properly in this country. And we're still uh, coming to grips with the, the, the racial uh, aspect of uh, uh, our, our multicultural life here. Yeah, you uh, could say all that yeah, now. Yeah, it's, it's, it's saying saying what, what he, just, he, what just, he just said. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think this might be a good time to call up Jim. Yep. What's, his, what's his full name? Jim Vuianueva. Jim Vuianueva. <laughs> no, that can't be his name. Jim Vuianueva. Oh, Via. Vuianueva. 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 Yeah. Who was the producer of this Rolling Stone one-on-one? segment back in 1993. Hello? Hey, uh, Jim, it's Vin Skelsa. How are you, sir? I am well, and you? I'm doing great. Good. How about you? Okay. And this is Kate. Hi, Jim. Hello, Kate. How are you? <laughs> Hi, good. How are you doing? I'm great. Well, welcome, welcome to our podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And, well, thank you so much for sending this David Bowie show to us. Uh, I thought I had a copy of that original CD that was sent out to the radio stations, you know, but I couldn't find one. I have the Pete Townsend, yeah. um, but, but the Bowie we couldn't find. And then your friend happened to hear the... Uh, the podcast and got in touch with you and you were so gracious and kind to to get back to us and to send us a copy of this thing ah well it was my pleasure mystery solved yeah huh? now <laughs> tell me who who were you working for back in 1993 uh i was working for and and it and it is a thing it is actually a thing because i heard uh, your your podcast when you guys were talking about uh the show uh uh, global Satellite Network. <laughs> I was making it, fun of it. Sounds fake. <laughs> it still exists. <laughs> no, it no longer exists. Oh, okay. But I was saying it sounded like something from like a dystopian, right, right, right. Yeah, right. novel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it, it was it was an actual thing. Uh, it was a, it was a you know national syndication uh, company. It was uh, best known for. Um, Rockline, which oh. uh, you know you may be familiar with, yes. your, your listeners. Uh, that was uh, that was you know a weekly syndicated show, ninety minutes live. You know we hosted 
the biggest names in rock and roll and unique thing about that show uh, back in the day of course is that uh, folks uh, fans actually had the opportunity to pick up the telephone remember when we used to use those <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and call in and you know talk to the biggest names in rock and roll so mm. that was Rockline which I produced for five years from 92 to 97 and uh, and that was owned by Global Satellite Network mm. so now there. where were you based then uh, in Los Angeles which is uh, we where were... you still are now right Myself, personally, yeah, yeah. I am actually uh, now just out uh, in Northern California, just outside of Sacramento. Okay. Um, as I often say, I, I live in a you know, suburb outside of Sacramento that's called Rocklin. Rocklin. Say <laughs> Rocklin. It's Rockline without the E. That's great. Ironically. Now, when you did that Rockline and the, the Rolling Stone one-on-one, that was out of L.A., um, yes. Did these artists, when you did Rockline, for instance, were they all in L.A. with you? No. Uh, you know, occasionally we would do, you know, satellite shows mm-hmm. via satellite. Uh, David Bowie is, uh, is a great example. Um, I had, you know, in my time there, again, the five years that I, that I was producing Rockline and working for a global satellite network, um, I had David on Rockline three occasions. Wow. 93 for the uh, Black Tie White Noise, uh, which, of course, was the album that uh, you sat down and, and talked to him about. And then again in 95 for the Outside album. And the last time was in uh, March of 97 for the Earthling album. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, that one uh, we did from... David was in New York at the then Museum of Television and Radio. I, I believe they've changed the name of that place. Yeah, it's the Paley Center for Radio yes. and Television Arts or something now. Yes, yeah, exactly, because yeah. there there's one in Los Angeles as well. And, mm-hmm. But, yeah, so we, uh, you know, I would travel sometimes you know, to do the Rockline shows when, when, uh, and, you know, when needed. Uh, I did several shows, in fact, from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh. Uh, we were there the opening weekend of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Rockline, did that have a, a, a one host throughout, or did many different people host it? Um, it there, were, there were a handful, a, a small handful. It was ma- mainly Bob Coburn uh, was, uh, had the, the, the longest run on mm-hmm. Rockline. He and I actually worked. I, I began my career at uh, 95.5 KLOS, a classic rock uh-huh. station in Los yeah. Angeles. I was there a total of eight years, spent three years as the music director there. Mm. But uh, Bob Coburn and I uh, knew each other from there. So Bob had the longest run, but uh, in my, in, again, in my five years there, um, I spent three of them with Steve Downs, who is. Um, also, I, I knew from KLOS, there were a handful, but, but, but Bob, Bob Coburn was the one that uh, held the seat the longest. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what the idea was behind the one-on-one show and what Rolling Stone's involvement in it was? Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm with you guys, uh, you know, it was, it was sad to see that uh, we only did two of the shows, but... Um, you know, I, I wasn't involved certainly is in the in, in you know setting the thing up and, and hooking up with Rolling Stone, so I can only speculate. I, I imagine that uh, you know the the concept was to do these great interviews uh, uh, hosted you know by by 
by you, Vin, and uh, and really get an in-depth look into you know these fantastic artists, uh, which sounds like a wonderful idea. Mm. So I was all behind it, and when you know they came down the hall and into my office and said, "Would you, you know, we need you to write and produce this thing," I was I was giddy. Right. And so, did they did the two episodes play? Do we yes, know they did? They did. Yes, okay. They did. I can tell you the the um, Townsend, the, the initial one, because I'm looking at it here. I've got it on CD as well as as do you, Vin. Uh, yeah, that that aired the week of April 19th, mm. 93, and then the Bowie episode, the now found Bowie episode, uh, that one aired the week of May 10th of 93. So both of them did air. Okay. But um, yeah, why? Why they didn't, uh, you know, continue, catch on, you know, we can only speculate. Mm. Um, you, uh, you were not involved in hiring me, right? You were, you were brought in in the same way that I was brought in, as, a, as, a, hired, as a hired outside person, right? Well, um, not not exactly, because I was, you know, I worked for Global Satellite. You worked for Global, worked. yeah. Right. So, and, you know, my main gig there was, was producing Rockline, mm-hmm. but as I say, in addition, I've, you know, produced a bunch of, you know, holiday specials and, you know, one-offs and other weekly, monthly shows and so forth. So this was just another assignment, right? Just, right. if you will. When you, um, when you worked with Bowie on these other shows on Rockline, the three yeah. the three other times did you get a chance to meet him and talk yes, to him yes i did can you yes i did can uh, you... the uh in 95 um he was he was in studio in los angeles uh, when we did the outside uh for the outside album and um you know then i'm sure as 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 you do a lot of you know throughout the years folks ask you you know like who was the coolest guy you ever you know met and you know talked to and who was the biggest jerk and um in my case uh for many many years i can i can tell you that david bowie was right at the top of the list of just the n- most wonderful gentlemen mm-hmm. um, yeah. that you can you know imagine um Carlos Santana would be close to uh, yeah. that list as well. You know, close to the top, I should say. But yeah, so I did get a chance to uh, to he he came in. He you know we went through you know the the pre pre show and and so forth. Uh, just could not have been a nicer human being, and and you know a guy that was obviously a huge rock star and could had every right to act air quotes. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. the rock star, yeah, and was you know couldn't have been further from that stereotype, I guess. Yeah, that's that was certainly my experience with him for that hour or so that I spent with him back then. The um, the actual raw tapes of my conversation with him are lost, right? They don't exist anywhere, do they? Um, yeah i I don't have I don't have them. Uh, I don't have the raw interview. Um, yeah, it, or the Townsend one, uh, mm. for that matter, that you did. They may be somewhere, um, <laughs> but uh, but, it, but again, Global Satellite Network as a network, you know, was sold off eventually to Premier, and then spun off again to a smaller company. And so, you know, where where the the original archives may be, that that I think. 
still remains a mystery. Yeah. Okay. It's like Citizen Kane. It's somewhere <laughs> in the yeah, right <laughs> on a shelf somewhere, or yeah, yeah, some storage unit, in, you know, in the San Fernando Valley. Who knows? Right. Well, we've been we've been listening to the the uh, conversation portions of the show. You did a marvelous job, I think, of integrating the music into the conversation and and uh i wanted to compliment you on that you made me sound real good <laughs> so I, well, thank you thank I, you i appreciate it i mean they were they were great great shows to uh to work on not just you know these two shows the you know the one-on-ones but of all the things that i've done and you know at the top of the heap of course and i'm sure you'll agree vin is uh you know sitting and talking to these people that make this great music that we all love doing the interview um you know second for me is having this blank canvas and you know painting the you know oral picture if you will of of the conversation that you had and uh, of course you know weaving in the the music and so forth so i i just love doing that and that continue to uh to do that on on occasion but uh so thank you very much okay uh, tell us what you're up to these days you're still in some form of the music business broadcasting are you not i am clinging on by the uh, fingernails uh, <laughs> <laughs> off, off the proverbial radio cliff uh certainly uh the times uh, they are ch- 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 changing yes mm. yep um yeah, I'm uh, mostly what I'm doing now is um, is is write, I, I write a bunch of artist bios. I still do a lot of you know art, interview a lot of artists. I'm I'm big into promoting new music. Um, I for for a while uh, when I left KLOS and uh, for the second time in '92 when they eliminated the music director position. Imagine that at a radio station, music station. Yeah. Right. No music director. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. You don't um, need that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I started back then my own uh, syndication company called Current Classics, playing one-hour weekly syndicated show back then for about three years where I played, you know, current music from the biggest names in classic rock at that time. Well, since then, fast forward, I updated that. and So I was doing a podcast uh also updated the version of current classics for close to two years and um and, and playing new artists and you know new music from new artists mm-hmm. and classic artists as are well. those are the podcasts still available um they're up on uh, soundcloud as well Great. and uh and uh, I, you know i stopped doing it just uh, a, a few months back but uh, they're up there uh yeah and uh and then you know you can I have a Facebook page, you know, facebook.com slash current classics that, you know, folks can like, and, and there's, you know, links to the shows there. You're on Twitter as current classics also, right? Correct. Great. I'm on Twitter as well. Great. Current classics. So, and then, and uh, yeah, so mostly what I'm doing now, again, is, is uh, the interviews, and I'm writing. I'm writing stuff for All Access uh, music website. Uh, oh. All Access is... And I'm uh, not sure if you're familiar, but, you know, they're, they're kind of a, a radio Bible, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so I do in-depth interviews, and then I, I write them in Q&A style because, I, you know, for me, I'd rather have the artist uh, tell his or her own story as opposed to me flowering it up, you know. Jim Villanueva, thank you so much for sharing the uh, this old Bowie show 
with us here on the the Kate and Vince Gelsa podcast. Um, and and um, thank you for being you, man. I'm, it's uh, nice to meet you after all these years. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was going to start the conversation with it's nice to meet you. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, I, I, uh, you know, the, to the best of my recollection, I don't think we've ever said hello face to face. Yeah. You know, I certainly have, you know, went to New York and did a lot of work there and stuff. But uh, now it's, it's, it's great to talk to you. And thanks. Thanks for having me. It's okay. been a pleasure. Thank you, Jim. And, and you're very welcome. Um, I'm glad I could help out, and uh, you got a copy of the show. You so got great. You got some good karma coming your way now, man. <laughs> all right. I can use it. <laughs> hey, we all can. <laughs> Take care, man. Thank you again. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. So, nice guy, huh? Jim Villanueva. Yes, Jim Villanueva. Thank you, Jim. Who was the original producer on uh, the Rolling Stone one-on-one back in 1993, working for Global Satellite Network then, which was the syndicating company that put out these two shows that uh, I was the interviewer slash voice of. There is one more segment of, Mm -hmm. of the Bowie interview, and this one... I find particularly moving and relevant in terms of the last project that he worked on, which was this theater piece where he went back um, with New York Theater Workshop and others and developed a stage version of um, The Man Who Fell to Earth. I think... When, when you hear how we wrapped up the conversation, you can see how, um, how very in touch and how very prescient um, he was. This, this is a man who knew who he was, for sure. David Bowie. One final question for David Bowie. Um, all throughout your, your public career, you have created characters. Uh, whether it be Ziggy, whether it be Aladdin, saying you've the thin white duke, you've created these persona. Is there any danger that the very happy, um, peaceful, um, fulfilled, married David Bowie that sits before me right now with a smile on his face and who seems to be enjoying life and embracing everything, is there any danger this is going to just be another character and you're going to wake up one day and go, oh, man, I'm tired of that. Let's go on to something else. Well, I take your point, but firstly, I have to deconstruct the question. I think I have to qualify it with the fact that the characters were not written after 1976. To my knowledge, uh, the music that I've put out since that period has been, however ever idiosyncratic, has been fundamentally myself as a writer. The suits have changed, but the music has remained the same. I think probably there's one more character that I'd like to write for theatre, uh, for musical theatre, um, maybe a little later. And, and I'd, 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 It does appeal to me, and I would like to do one more. And he'll come. Yeah, but do you, do you know what I mean about about being uh, happy? Do you? Fe- I'm not. I don't want to be facetious. No, do I you fear that you'll wake up one day and fall back into that that old you know problem? No, because no. Firstly, because I know how um, uh, I know how those characters evolved, and they evolved through sort of a not a, 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 a blind understanding of one's reality. I think my reality quota has changed a lot over the last at least ten years. Um, I don't suspect that I would slip back into the the emotional 
numbing of the 70s ever again. Well, for a man who can uh, um, sing on the, the lyric version of the wedding song, um, Don't I Feel Like a Saint Alive, I Believe in Magic. I mean, that's, that's a happy man. Yes, put a loving spoonful in there. <laughs> David Bowie, thanks for being our guest. On My pleasure. One on one. Thank you very much, man. Take care. Isn't that beautiful? And it's like 23 years later, 24 years later, whatever it is, he gets this this new vision and um, puts it on stage in New York Theatre Workshop and he creates that one last character and he creates this last album, which is, um, it's his message to us about it all. I mean, it's like, it's it's remarkable. I... I have so much trouble actually listening to this last album. Yeah. I, I, the first time I tried it, I just broke down and started crying. You know, it was like, oh, man, just so beautiful and so eerie. And it was like listening to somebody singing from the grave, you know. Yeah. It's, and and I'm, I'm still absorbing and, and uh, um, digesting it all and coming to grips with it. But I particularly like that last segment, you know, and and the, and the answer to mm-hmm. that question of is this possibly just another character and you fear maybe that you're going to wake up one day and get well, sick I of like it. Well, I like that the characters are also something he associates with youth mm-hmm. and that he's a little bit implying there, I feel like, that that wasn't him it's it, they're def- it's a deflective device right to create a character that you then have a persona and it's not you so therefore it can be you can have this outrageousness that is also he's associating here with a kind of escapism in his life in mm. a moment so it's interesting that you know those characters spoke so much to people and are so meaningful to people but for him it's he recognizes like okay well now i'm making work that is is just me mm. and that's coming from a more vulnerable place too right to just be like well it's right i love that the suits change but the music stays the same <laughs> right like it's now it's just me you're not hiding behind a character which not the characters are bad characters mm. can be great and can bring out great stuff and give you an excuse to have all kinds of outrageous things but it it you as an artist are hiding behind it in some way right mm. it's really interesting well i'm glad we finally got to do this show it was so worth it oh my gosh i it, what a special interview i think i want to go listen to uh all 59 of his recordings I know. now I know. <laughs> however many albums well so are. now our next quest that we can put out there is where in the in the Citizen Kane storage room is the full interview. Yeah. We'll just say that. Uh, we'll just say that. All right. We won't hold up. We're not going to make an ultimatum like we did with this one. This was like this is what I needed well, to find. We found the show. We found the show. And uh, the full interview would just be icing on the cake. That would <laughs> my, that one might be just greedy. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we mentioned where you can find uh, Jim online. You can also find us uh, on the Idiot's Delight page on Facebook. And I have a page on a Kate Scalsa page on Facebook for uh, my, my writing and my books. And you can also email us. Our email address is 
Kate and Vin Skelsa podcast at gmail.com. And we're always happy to hear from you. And I think that's all our social media presence. Okay. You have you have most of the presence. I have presence. I uh Yeah, I have a website, Kate I, t- I tend to and... to shrink from it. I know. <laughs> to hide away. I'm basically uh I'm basically living as a, a like a, a hermit right now, which I like. I, I'm your, wait, your experimental music is back. Is this what we're hearing? Yeah, that's what. Yeah, <laughs> this is what I do now. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, it's a little aggressive. You think? Find us a different part. All right, I'll find a different part. Let's hear. Oh, still aggressive. Oh, I don't. Oh, I know what's wrong. Wait. Hmm. Well, I guess we can't use it. Okay. That's all right. Yeah. So well, we'll go I'll back c- to Okay. Yeah, so you're the you're the you're the 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 online presence for this podcast. You're the you're the online uh maestro. Ambassador. So the ambassador, right? So if you have any uh <laughs> questions you got or, any problems, talk to the yeah, kid. Yeah, talk to <laughs> Don't bother me. Talk to the kid. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kate Skelsa. Thanks, Dad. All right. This has been episode eleven. Eleven, and we'll do it again next time. Great. Thanks for listening. Bye.